You're listening to ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Brannigan, Vice President, Clinical and Organizational Ethics at the Center for Practical Bioethics in Kansas City. Thank you, Dr. Brannigan, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Pickard. Today we're going to be discussing the ethical issues that could arise during a national disaster. First of all, Dr. Brannigan, could you tell me a little bit about the Center for Practical Bioethics? Well, the Center for Practical Bioethics was formally called the Midwest Bioethics Center. It was one of the first think tanks to address issues in bioethics. And by bioethics, I mean those issues that are specific to healthcare, specific to the life sciences, issues such as stem cell research, issues such as advanced directives, patients' rights, etc., end-of-life decision-making. And the center has been around for 20 years, and we do a lot of great work, and we're nationally renowned for the work that we do on behalf of patients and also on behalf of healthcare professionals when they face very difficult ethical conflicts. What are some of the issues of an ethical nature that you see could arise during and have arisen during a national disaster? There are numerous issues that can come about on very different levels. If we look at the large macro level, government powers always being in tension with the good of the community, government powers in tension with individual rights and individual liberties, I think one of the most important issues in that is this. How is it possible that we can cultivate trust that the public may have in whatever governments decide has to be done in a disaster, whether it's the federal government, state government, or city government. So the role of trust is crucial in that. Without public trust in state powers or government powers, uh, any kind of plan will uh, really be difficult to implement. So that's that macro level. On an institutional level, it's that institutional health care, the hospital level, there will be a fact that there will be increased need for services but it will also be in fact in a disaster that the resources will be diminished severely. So the question is, how do we fairly allocate our scarce resources in the best way? That's a real difficult issue, and all kinds of ethical issues come from that. If we look at another level within that institution, the personal private issue of the relationship between healthcare provider and patients, the question is this. Will there be times when healthcare providers may feel morally justified in caring more for their family and loved ones than for their patients, especially if we're dealing with infectious disease? That's a real tough one. There's the issue of constraints on our liberties, either through quarantine or through isolation. How can these constraints be justified morally? And how can we protect and safeguard and support those who are constrained, either because they're isolated or because they are quarantined? Well, what is a doctor supposed to do? How is he supposed to deal with the conflicts that he will have, one in providing for his family, and also not having the medical resources so that even if he stays in a disaster area, he may not be able to provide care? There's no black and white answer to that, unfortunately. As we know, the, the primary obligation that a health care provider has is to his or her patient. That's the traditional obligation that's spelled out. We see this clearly in, with our ethics committees, that uh, oftentimes there are cases in which it's, 
it's a matter regarding the individual relationship that a provider has with his or her patient. So from a traditional point of view, sure, first and foremost obligation is to my patient as an individual, as a person. But in the case of a disaster, in the case of a situation in which resources are very scarce, and the case in which where there's an infectious disease in my health, not only my health, but the health of my family and loved ones is at stake, now the difficult question is, well, well what about the, the duties now that may conflict? What is uppermost, my duty to my patient or my duty to my family? If we look at the past, uh, let's look, at, for instance, at the Ebola virus. I think this was in 95 or 96. When Red Cross workers went to uh, the village of Kickwick, they found no health care providers there, only patients who were dying from Ebola, and they were in beds with other patients who had already died. So because of the terrible, terrible nature of that, of the Ebola, many felt that they were justified in not contracting the disease themselves and therefore abandoning their patients. If we look at Katrina, then we hear of stories in which health providers felt that they were morally obliged to care more for their family and loved ones than for their individual patients. So this is the terrible, terribly difficult question. In a situation, especially where there's an infectious disease, what is the utmost, what priority do I have? Or what, what is the scope of my duties to my patients versus to others for whom I care? Is abandoning our patients ever morally justified? If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And with me today, our guest is Dr. Michael Brannigan, Vice President, Clinical and Organizational Ethics at the Center for Practical Bioethics. And we've been discussing the various ethical issues that may arise during a national disaster. Now, I was just thinking that we do see doctors leave their patients at a moment of national disaster, but very quickly are only too willing to move back into the area. One of the concerns that we have is how coordinated are the efforts that the individual hospitals have with each other? How collaborative are these efforts? Because one can have Hospital A working on their own disaster plan, Hospital B and C also working on their own disaster plans. The issue is how can we ensure that A, B, and C are all pretty much on the same page, number one? And secondly, how can we ensure that A, B, and C are working with a disaster plan which is ethically sound and morally appropriate? Here's an example. The allocation of ventilators will be a difficult choice in this situation, scarce ventilators. Right now, the Center for Practical Bioethics has formed a task force with Mid-America Regional Council, M-A-R-C. Mid-America Regional Council has done a good deal of major planning with respect to disaster preparing and response. We found out with our ethics committees with whom we meet every other month that the ethics committee members themselves were not aware of their own disaster planning within their hospitals. So we felt that let's, let's work together with Mid-America Regional Council Let's work with their regional hospital ethics committee contacts. Let's work with their hospital contacts, those persons who are responsible for coordinating disaster planning, and let's see if we can work together and uh, come up with some fair, fair guidelines that would support the fair allocation of ventilators in, in the time of a disaster or crisis. 
This is a work that's on their way now with the center, and it's a challenge because what it requires is that we all work together, we all know what our plan, respective plans are, and that we try to hammer out an allocation of ventilator policy which is morally supportable. Would this conference also be dealing with the distribution of dollars to make sure that they are managed and that there's an equitable sharing of dollars where they are needed? You have different hospitals, but their own bases are different. St. Luke's has a large health structure. Much more dollars are invested in that, perhaps, than in a smaller hospital such as Research Belton. But what's important is that the the planning is all coordinated and collaborated and everyone is working together. You touched on trust and how the public has to buy in to any system. One wonders about recent headlines that suggest that $485 million were overpaid to storm victims, and now FEMA is asking for this money to be returned. Does this kind of thing build trust? No, it doesn't build trust at all. It does the opposite. I mean, there's tremendous suspicion and cynicism regarding the role of government, the role and the scope of government powers. That makes the challenge all the more all the more demanding, all the more pressing. If the public doesn't buy in to any kind of disaster schema, if there is a disaster, hopefully there won't be. If there is a some sort of major catastrophe, then there will be even more of a catastrophe. There has to be that public trust. Uh, Otherwise, none of this would work. Kenneth Feinberg is a special master appointed to disperse damage awards for what has been set aside as almost $11 billion. He certainly looks at the distribution of money based on economic losses, lost companionship, and emotional suffering. Are these issues that an ethics committee would look at? Here's one of the problems is that ethics committees and hospitals have traditionally addressed patients' rights and have been a spokesperson for for patients facing ethical issues. Now, we're in a society and in a culture which emphasizes our individual rights, individual liberties, individual entitlements. But now we're dealing with questions where the good of the community has to be of equal concern, if not more important concern, How do we balance individual rights and our concern for individual rights and safeguarding and supporting individual rights and liberties? How do we balance that with what we think is the good of the community? That's going to be a big question and a very difficult one, especially in our culture and in our society, because as I said before, we're very, very, very driven by our own individual, individual sense of entitlement, rights, and liberties. Uh, ethics committees face this challenge as well. Now they have to think about the greater good and uh, the notion of the common good. And that makes the challenge all the more pressing for us. Yeah, we're talking about the options that will produce maybe the most good and do the least amount of harm. That's right. These are very difficult issues and often revolve around fairness and justice. How do we look at a group of people who are impoverished and are disenfranchised to begin with and then fall into a category of being in a disaster? Sure. Well, let's take those now who at least perceive themselves to be marginalized in our health care system. Let's take those in many minority groups. Let's take African Americans. Let's take Latino groups, Vietnamese Americans, many Asian Americans. Let's take the elderly. Let's take the disabled groups. Many of these peoples already perceive that they are on the fringe of health care delivery and access currently. So 
if there is a disaster and we have to begin to really seriously dole out resources in a more hard-pressed way, then the perception may even be more acute that they're not they're going to continue to be treated unfairly and they're going to continue to be on the fringe of health care access and delivery. So that's going to be another terribly difficult issue in justice, is how do we see to it that those on the fringe, those who perceive themselves to be marginalized, are treated equally, just as everyone else is. I want to thank Dr. Michael Branigan, Vice President at the Center for Practical Bioethics, who's joined us today. We've been discussing ethical issues that may arise during a national disaster. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.